Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're excited to kick off a new series on labor law and to discuss the new joint employer rule issued by the National Labor Relations Board. Joining us on the program is Adam Santucci, a partner with McNeese in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and co-chair of the McNeese Labor and Employment Law Group. Adam, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us today. Tara, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be a part of the new labor law series and kick us off here. Well, we're so excited to talk with you today about these issues, and there have certainly been a lot of developments at the National Labor Relations Board lately, including changes to the rules regarding joint employer status. But before we get into those changes, let's start with understanding what a joint employer is and why this is important for U.S. companies. Yeah, absolutely. Probably a really good place to start. Joint employer status generally means that two entities are the legal employer of one group of employees or of the same group of employees. Stated another way, one or more employees have two employers. And joint employer status can exist under a number of employment laws, such as wage and hour laws, discrimination laws, and important for our purposes here today, the National Labor Relations Act. Common joint employer situations can arise when an employee uses temporary staffing agency employees or where subcontractors may be working on an employer's work site. In addition, franchisee and franchisors often face joint employer concerns or joint employer status. Employers really work hard to avoid joint employer status because they don't want to be responsible for another employer's failure to comply with the law. For example, if a temporary staffing agency is not paying the minimum wage, the company utilizing the temporary labor doesn't want to be on the hook for that violation. In the same way, companies who use temporary labor and subcontractors do not want to be liable if another company is violating the National Labor Relations Act or if those employees attempt to form a union. Well, that certainly makes sense and is a situation a lot of employers could face. And with all of that in mind, what has the legal landscape looked like in the past on this particular issue? It's really been all over the place under the National Labor Relations Act. The board's test for determining whether an employer is a joint employer is has swung back and forth pretty dramatically in recent years. The board's 2015 decision in Browning-Ferris dramatically expanded the joint employer definition. Browning-Ferris had held that if one entity had reserved or indirect or even limited control over a group of employees, it could still be deemed a joint employer under the National Labor Relations Act. The prior standard required actual control over the employees or their terms and conditions of employment. Browning-Ferris was partially overturned on appeal, and then in 2020, the board issued a final rule establishing a new definition of joint employer under the National Labor Relations Act. The 2020 rule required substantial, direct, and immediate control over the essential terms and conditions of the other company's employees, so actual instead of reserved control, essentially. But in October of 2023, and specifically on October 26, 2023, The 2022 rule was scrapped, and yet another new definition was adopted by the National Labor Relations Board. 
And Adam, for those who might not be familiar with the National Labor Relations Board, it seems like there is this pendulum swinging back and forth on the decisions that come from the board. Can you talk about that a little bit and the political implications of the board? Absolutely. Yeah, the board's pendulum has been swinging back and forth with the change in presidential administration from Democrat to Republican. And oftentimes in a Republican administration, more employer-friendly policies and procedures and decisions are rendered by the National Labor Relations Board. And in Democratic administrations, the decisions and the rules are often more employee or labor-friendly. Unfortunately, the pendulum's been swinging back and forth so hard lately that it's basically broken. And U.S. employers are having a hard time keeping up as these things shift back and forth. And the joint employer rule is just one example of that. I'm guessing that a lot of employers are suffering some legal whiplash on these issues coming out of the board on occasion. And now under the Biden administration, with the NLRB's recent announcement, what's the standard on joint employment going forward? Yeah, absolutely. The the 2023 rule largely reinstated the Browning-Ferris decision. So once again, joint employer status may be found where a company's control over the workforce is indirect or reserved. And even where it's never exercised, and you know, it's almost like imaginary control or power over a second group of employees. The rule even went a bit further than Browning-Ferris, however, because it provides that indirect or reserved control over the exclusive list of essential terms and conditions of employment. That alone will establish joint employer status. And in the past, there was other factors were required. So now it's you know that indirect reserve or imaginary power alone can result in a joint employer finding under the 2023 rule. And you mentioned this exclusive list of terms and conditions that might establish joint employer status. What types of items are on that list? So the board provided that list in its 2023 rule, and it you know, really covers a lot of different things. Some things that we're familiar with, like wages, benefits, and compensation, hours of work and scheduling assignment of duties to be performed, the supervision of the performance of those duties, work rules and directions governing the manner, means, and methods of the performance, and grounds for discipline. Also, things like tenure of employment, including hiring and discharge, and working conditions related to the safety and health of employees. For those U.S. employers working with temporary staffing agency employees, you know they're likely to see some things on this list that they do, in fact, have control over, or at least the right to exercise control over, including things like safety and health of the temporary employees assigned to their workforces. So, you know, this list, it really does change the dynamic for temporary staffing agencies, franchise and franchisor relationships and the like. This seems to me like an incredibly broad rule that the NLRB has announced. And from your perspective, what do you see as the immediate impact of the NLRB's new rule where a union is involved? Yeah, so we've already seen a stark increase in union organizing and union election petitions across the U.S. And we think this is going to further accelerate union organizing efforts. There's going to be an increased likelihood that a group of employees may organize and may try to have you know two employers at the bargaining table. And that could mean as a U.S. company, if you're looking at temporary staffing agency employees, subcontractor employees, or even your franchise ease employees. It's also going to increase the likelihood that you know one employer could suffer liability for unfair labor practice charges committed by a separate employer or a separate entity. 
it's going to increase the likelihood of unfair labor practices. So we see a lot of implications in the short term for U.S. companies who may be in these types of arrangements. And even outside of the union setting, how do you foresee the NLRB's rule impacting traditional employers? I think that employers really need to step back and consider these types of relationships and consider, you know, what action do they need to be taking now to protect themselves from a joint employer finding, whether it's under the National Labor Relations Act, wage and hour laws or discrimination laws. There's been a number of groundbreaking changes in U.S. labor law lately, and the joint employer rule is just the latest. Employers need to be aware of these things and start thinking about them now before they're caught flat-footed. Well, we know that the board has been busy, and certainly there are probably more developments to come. So, Adam, we truly appreciate you being here today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and thanks for breaking down the NLRB's new rule for our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to hearing some more from our labor law specialty group on these and other developing issues. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with Adam, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, you can search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks so much for listening.